Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you on this uh, snowy morning. I leaned over to Emily and said, babe, do I really have to go to church this morning? She said, yeah, you're the pastor, you gotta go, but I'm, I'm just kidding. I've really wanted to be here this morning, and if you're watching online or you felt the same way, like, do I have to come? You don't have to, but it is good for your heart, and it is honoring to the Lord. So I'm really glad that you guys are here today. Uh, if you are a guest with us, to remind, uh, or to remind the people that have been gathering with us and the guests, we're in a series. We're in a, the book of John, and we like to go verse by verse chapter by chapter, and see what God's Word has to say. We've been taking a pause for a little bit to do a Christmas series, but now we're jumping back into John. So if you're taking notes, here's the title of today's message is this. The gospel meets us where we are. The gospel meets us where we are. Now, here's what I love about the book of John, okay? The book of John is framed around seven interactions that Jesus has with seven different people. And by the way, that number seven is going to be a key detail for us later. Now, each of these interactions reveals to us the experience of what it would be like to meet Jesus then and also helps us understand what's it like to know him now. And so as we dive into one of those seven interactions, we're going to see how Jesus ministered to the woman at the well and what that means for how he ministers to us. Now, guys, this encounter, though, is particularly important because this woman is actually the very first person that Jesus reveals, overtly reveals to, that he is indeed the Messiah. And it's a shock. And so we begin, we have to ask this question, if this is the first encounter where he actually reveals himself fully as the Messiah, what are you and I supposed to learn about Jesus from this passage? What are we learning about women in this passage or the outcast of the day that we'll learn? And then how do we apply this passage to our very own lives? And so here's the first thing I want to say. Guys, this is a historical, true, real-life account. This really did happen. And also, this story reveals a five-fold pattern, guys, a five-fold pattern of how Jesus also relates to us. In fact, as you read each of those seven encounters in the book of John, you see this five-fold pattern everywhere about how he interacts with others. And so as we read this, I want us to see this. God wants you to see that he interacts with others in the gospel, and he wants to interact with us in the same way that we read today. So we're going to see these five things that we'll unpack in a moment. But behind each of these stories and behind this story that we read today is actually a real living Savior who is the same thing, who does the same things right now in our life that he did and said to those individuals back then, which in fact is a quote from author and pastor J.D. Greer, whom I adopted and adapted much of this outline and sermon content from. So, because I want you to see this five-fold pattern of how Jesus interacts with this woman because that's how he seeks to interact with you. So let me show it to you. Here's the first one. First one is Jesus comes for the unlikely and the unexpected. Guys, let me show you what I mean starting in verse three here. 
verse three, it says, Jesus left Judea and he departed again for this area called Galilee. And why he did this is because his popularity has been growing tremendously in this region. And so he leaves that region in order to make himself known in another region to people that don't yet trust in him as the Messiah. So then verse four states this, and I love it. He says this, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He was on a mission. He felt motivated, determined. He had to go through Samaria when Jews of that day tried to go around Samaria so that they didn't have to interact with the people there. Verse five. So he came to this town in Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus in his full humanity and his full deity, he was wearied from his journey and he sat down beside this well. And it was about the sixth hour, which is about noon. It's the hottest part of the day, the part of the day that you don't wanna be outside in. And verse seven, during that time, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, a couple observations that we gotta point out here. First observation we've gotta point out under this point is that Jesus comes to a woman, a woman. Now, sadly, during that day, Jewish men did not typically discuss religion with women. Now, that would be frowned upon if they did that during that day, since women during that day were seen as second-class citizens. And as a result, they were treated as of lesser value than men, which is why this interaction is really so unexpected. Second thing we learned that this woman is a Samaritan, not just a woman, but she's a Samaritan. Now, as I alluded to earlier, Samaritans and Jews had a long-standing feud that stretched back for centuries. And Jews considered Samaritans to be lesser than them. In fact, the Jews called them derogatory names like half-breeds and half-bloods. And for the Harry Potter fans in the room, I think they're called mudbloods. Samaritans were descendants of the Jews in the northern kingdom of Israel who had intermarried with the Gentiles in these Old Testament times. And because of that, they were viewed poorly. And it was seen to them that it was likened that they were forfeiting their Jewish identity by intermarrying with the Gentiles of that day. So at that time, Samaritans were considered to be racially and religiously unclean and tainted and lesser than the Jewish people. Guys, even further, the Jewish people believe that whatever a Samaritan touched with their hand, that object then became unclean, which is why when the woman says in this story that she will give Jesus something to drink at the same vessel she would drink from would be a shock to the Jewish people first reading this story. But as we know, it's not it's not what is touched that makes us unclean, but Jesus touching it makes it clean. Most Jews would not even sit somewhere that a Samaritan had sat without some sort of cleansing ritual process that they would undertake. Because even further, Samaritans were not even allowed to visit the holy temple in Jerusalem for worship because they were rejected. And so they were forced to build their own places and spaces of worship on the mountains around them. Guys, even more sad 
was again, that area of Samaria, Samaria was located right in the middle of Israel. Let me show you a map real quick about where this is. Again, if you notice in the text that Jesus was traveling from one region to the other region, and he had to go through Samaria, when typically the path that they would take, they would go from Jerusalem to Jericho, and they would kind of go back around through the Jordan River over there, and they would get to Nazareth. They would go around the different paths to go either to Galilee or to Judea. But Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria because I have to meet this woman where she's at. Guys, this was sad because even during that day, if you were to walk around Samaria, it would add an extra day to your journey. But the Jewish people said, I don't care. I don't want to be anywhere near those people. Third thing, the observation from this is that this is a woman. She is from Samaria, but she also had a bad reputation and a moral reputation. The fact that this woman comes to this well during the sixth hour, which is again is 12 p.m., the heat of the day, it indicates something to us. It indicates that she was not accepted by the other women in her town. The women would typically go earlier in the morning before the heat of the day came, but she wasn't allowed to travel with those women. They didn't want to be near her. They ostracized her. They mocked her. They laughed at her. She wasn't invited. She wasn't allowed to go with her. So she went, when the women came back, then she would go in the heat of the day to draw water, several gallons, bring it back by herself. She would do this day after day after day after day to care for herself and whoever else was in her life. So, so far we've learned three things about how Jesus comes to the unlikely and unexpected of his day. He visits a woman, a woman from Samaria, no less. And she's a woman with a bad reputation because of her past. And yet, this is the first person whom Jesus chooses to reveal himself to that he is the Messiah. Can you just pause for a moment and imagine you being a Jewish person during that day and reading this passage or hearing this story? Like let the weight of who he reached sink in. It doesn't match what they thought. It's an unlikely person, shady background, it's unexpected. And Jesus could have picked anybody to go through, anybody to go to, but yet he picks her. He travels to her, the broken, the hated, the rejected. And guys, the reason I point this out is because some of you here today or some of you watching online, you can really actually resonate with this woman. You feel like an outcast in your own world. Maybe it's because of your gender, your sexuality, maybe because of your skin color, your nationality, or maybe it's because of your past sin or a present addiction. Whatever the case may be, maybe you can really resonate with this woman because you feel like an outsider as well. And I want you to know, church, that Jesus didn't just come for her. He comes for us. He comes to us where we are. Guys, he, came, he, he comes to meet us in that dry and desolate place where maybe you're at spiritually, Christian. He comes to sit with us in your sadness and in your loneliness. And most importantly, he comes to satisfy your thirst to be wanted and to be loved and to be freed from shame. Something that only Jesus can do when you and I turn and trust in his death on the cross for us. 
In fact, that's why I love this author John starts this passage in verse two by saying, Jesus had to go through Samaria because the truth is that he didn't have to culturally. Everyone else passed by Samaria, not Jesus. In church, he does not pass you by either. He knows every tear you've cried, every lonely feeling you've had, every ounce of shame and guilt you've experienced in your life because of the sin you've chosen. And rather than passing you by, he has to come to you. And if you're here today, you are not here by accident. If you're listening online or later during the week, it's not an accident that you are hearing this message because through these words of scripture, he is coming to us, revealing that you are too worth it to be passed by. And he meets you where you are. Number two, Jesus knows everything about you. Everything. Verse 16 and 18, we see this when Jesus says to her, excuse me, woman, would you go and call your husband and, and come here? Now, at this point, they're having some theological debate together and Jesus is trying to use the metaphor of water to illustrate something that her heart and her soul really needs. She thirsts to be loved and to be wanted and to belong. And Jesus says, yes, I have a living water that is better that can supply what your heart really longs for. And they get in some theological debate, which by the way, when our hearts crave something, we often find something else to distract us. And so she uses theology and talks about, well, we worship on this mountain and you worship on this temple. And she sidesteps the conversation. Jesus pauses and says, listen, I want you to call your husband and come back here. We can have more of this discussion together. And the woman answered him in verse 17, I have no husband. And Jesus looks at her and he says to her, you're right in saying that you have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one that you're now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. And this passage, this section reveals to us that Jesus knew all of her secrets, all of her thoughts, all of her past, everything in private he had never met her before. She had never known him. And she is all of a sudden just hearing about how he knows every detail of her life. Now, I imagine with a little bit of creative thought here, I imagine that Jesus shared more details here because later in the passage, she says, come and see a man that told me everything I ever did. So imagine that John is just sort of quick hand here sharing a snippet that maybe caught her heart about, yes, this man does know everything about me when I'm sure Jesus shared even a bit further. See, he knew all the ways that she felt alone in her life. He knew all the ways that she felt misunderstood, all the ways that she felt judged and condemned and ostracized by her community. And he knew all the ways and all the things that caused her shame in her life. In fact, he knew all the things that could have actually gotten her killed. You see, in those days, being caught in sexual sin of her type was punishable by death. In the wrong crowd, she could have been stoned to death according to the law of that land in that day. So for him to know this about her and then to bring it up to her was not only embarrassing, but it was also threatening to her. See, this encounter causes us to ask a question that honestly 
we all have to ask ourselves internally, Pastor J.D. Greer had said. And that question is this. What is it like to be completely exposed in all of your sin and all of your shame and have nowhere to hide in the presence of a holy and perfect God? And the answer is safe. That's what it's like to be completely exposed, 100% safe, 100% secure for those who take their sin and they turn it over to Jesus on the cross so that he can wash it away and atone for it through his death so that you can have life in him. Which leads us to number three here. Jesus came to not condemn you, but to save you. Let's look and and see this starting in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and what it is that is saying, or who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus said to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water at this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. For the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Church, we see in these verses that Jesus did not come to expose this woman in order to embarrass her or shame her or judge her. He exposed her sin to her in order so that he could save her from that very sin. Or as we often say here at Koa, God called her out in order to call her in, to call her into something better, call her into his truth, his love, and his forgiveness in the midst of her sin. In fact, in the chapter right before this one, the author John tells in chapter three, verse 17, for God did not send his son Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And even before that, John tells us in chapter one, verse 14, that Jesus is both full of grace and full of truth. So again, you might be wondering if God is holy and perfect and just, doesn't he hate sin? And the answer is yes, absolutely. God hates my sin. God hates your sin. So much so that he says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin The justice of sin due to us, it's death. So yes, God hates your sin and God must bring justice to it. But yet it's in that justice that God teaches in Romans 5, 8, the following, that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died, Christ took the justice we deserve. He took the punishment. He took the wages of sin that we deserve and he died in our place. For while we were enemies, it continues of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So what do we do, church? We rejoice in God, the passage says, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation with God. For it's from these verses and in this encounter at this well that we learn this beautiful truth that God condemned your record of sin to the cross so that you could be covered in his grace 
and righteousness. See, Jesus knew the truth about this woman and he knows the truth about you, about me. And yet he spoke words of love and truth and grace and not words of hate and judgment and condemnation. And why is that? Even though he hates sin, why did he speak this way? Why did he treat her with such grace? It's because Jesus was going to the cross where he would be condemned in her place, where he would be condemned for us, where he would be murdered on the cross and his blood would be shed so that our sins could be taken away. He can speak words of acceptance to us because he heard words of rejection for us. On the cross, the father had turned his face away to Jesus so that he could turn his face towards us in grace. God had promised the Messiah for 2,000 years who would come and save an unlikely and unexpected people. And at that time, everyone assumed that that meant that Jesus, the Messiah would overthrow Rome or get rid of world hunger or get rid of all disease and make all their problems go away. But Jesus came because there was a bigger salvation that was needed because there was a bigger problem that the Messiah needed to deliver you and I from. It's the problem that's not just out there in the world. It's a problem that's in me and it's in you. It's the fact that all of us, we need to be delivered from our sin and our shame and our fear that keeps us hiding and separated from God. We need to be saved from ourselves and the sin that's within. And that's why God calls her sin out so that he can take that record out and put it on the cross and take his record of righteousness and give it to her so she can be forgiven and reconciled to God. See, Koa, the last thing that our church should be and the last thing that churches should be in general is some closed up group of self-righteous, judgmental people who just huddle together and condemn the world around us. It's the last thing we should be in. Why? Because the church is more like a hospital full of redeemed and recovering sinners whom God is bringing together from every tribe and every nation and every tongue so that we can go out into the world and lovingly point others to the same Jesus that we needed and offer the grace and truth of Christ by pointing them to him. So it's in this story, yes, Jesus exposes this woman not to humiliate her, but to forgive her. And he wants to expose your sin to him as well, not to condemn you, but to save you. Number four, number four, Jesus is what you're actually and truly looking for in your life. Jesus is what you're truly looking for. And we know that because of verse 25 and 26. After all this discussion and Jesus talking about water and this metaphor and worship and she dodges through theology and her marriage and she steps back because it starts getting personal. This woman just says, listen, I, I know this Messiah is coming who's called the Christ this savior who would come. And when he comes, he's gonna tell us all things. He's gonna settle this out. And Jesus looks at her. And I can imagine what this would be like to actually hear these words from Jesus face to face. Jesus says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I am the one you've been looking for. I'm the one you've been searching for. See, because all of this woman's life, she's been searching. She's been searching to numb the empty longings that are deep inside of her, that maybe her father left, her friends left. 
something that could take away all the shame for all her years. She was looking for it. And we see in verse 18 that tells us that she's been through five marriages and she still hasn't found what she's looking for. In fact, that's what the famous U2 song is getting at, right? When they sing, I've climbed the highest mountain and I've run through the fields and I've scaled these city walls, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And if we're honest, if you're honest, maybe that's where you are seated right now. Maybe you haven't been through five marriages, but in some way you've turned to five other things in your life, longing and searching and hoping to find what your heart really is looking for. So guys, if I can just be honest with you, church, and just ask you honestly, like where are you looking to be satisfied? Maybe you thought that a relationship with someone would make the thirst for love go away. Maybe you thought in this room that by being married would be about being wanted and desired and make you feel special and chosen and appreciated. And now you're a few years into that marriage. Maybe you're a kid or two later in that marriage and the romance has grown a a bit cold and you feel more alone than you ever have. And sadly, that thirst to be loved and desired, it still remains and it's even worse. For others of you, maybe you thought that your job or your school would make the thirst for fulfillment or validation go away. You think that maybe if you could climb that ladder and get that award or earn that degree and land that new job, that finally you would feel that you had made it in this life And you can prove yourself to someone. But if you're honest, time is drawing on and you actually feel less fulfilled at that job you were once excited about. You feel less content now and you feel more stressed than you ever imagined. And sadly, the thirst for fulfillment and validation, it still remains and it's getting worse. Maybe you thought that that weight loss the cool outfit, the new hairstyle, the makeup would make the thirst for belonging or to be found desirable in the eyes of others that it would make it go away. But as time continues, the styles keep changing and you feel like you can't keep the weight off and you find yourself as you look in the mirror not as desirable as you want. And the thirst to belong and to be wanted still remains and it's getting worse. Church, your well, if you would, maybe friends or marriage or kids or your job or the school you got into, a financial status, or it's building towards a life of comfort and ease and fulfillment and you go to it every day in the heat of the day, hoping to draw from those relationships, those people, those possessions and draw it up and be satisfied And you might be satisfied for a season, for a time, or maybe you'll be satisfied for a night. But as you look into the well, you look into your cup, and it's empty, and you have to go again and again and again to it. And if you're honest, the thirst in your life still remains. 
Guys, that's why the gospel is just so beautiful because it's in the gospel that Jesus offers us something that will actually last forever. And that's himself. That's what he's offering this woman when he says, I offer you living water. He's offering himself, not a man that will leave her, not a relationship that will betray or give up or abandon. Everything else in her life has given up on her, has quit her, has rejected her. And Jesus is saying, I will never. It's his eternal presence, the eternal life he gives. It's the eternal joy he has. It's the eternal fellowship of God that you were created for, that God is offering all of us. And so church, let me ask you this. Be honest with me. She's had five husbands, right? And now she's living with a man that's not her husband, which makes him number what? Six. And so what number does that make Jesus? The number seven, right? Doing some math early in this morning. You're like, what are we doing here with math? Now, listen, I don't want you to freak out with numbers. You can go on lots of tangents trying to get numbers and what's the sign mean? And, you know, you get an apartment and you're like, oh, I can't live on the 13th floor because, I, you know, who knows what you're doing with numbers. Don't get super weird, but we can. When we see the number seven pop up, that is intentional in the scripture, especially if you know the author, John. Seven is a really important number that he includes in his book. Why? Because John includes seven miracles, seven interactions, seven I am statements. And why is this obsession with number seven? It's because it represents the number of completion, of wholeness and fulfillment. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying to her numerically here that although you've been working your way through all of these six human relationships, and that six represents actually all of your life and all of these relationships that you've turned to that have let you down, that have hurt you and that left you feeling unfulfilled and empty and wounded. Jesus says, I am the seventh relationship. And just like God rested on the seventh day of creation, we can rest in the seventh person, the seventh relationship. We can rest in God. This is a relationship that she's been looking for all her life. In a sense, through this number, Jesus is saying, I'm the romance that you've been looking for. The arms that you were searching for comfort and for love were actually my arms. I'm the friendship. I'm the companion. I'm the best friend that you've longed to know. I'm the confidant. I'm the counselor. I'm the comforter that you've been looking for. I'm the rock, the security, the defender, the provider, the well that will never run dry. I'm all of it, he's saying. I'm everything that you've been looking for. It's me. And church, Jesus is telling you the very same thing. He's the one that you really have been looking for when you've been searching in your job and relationships and style and money and comfort. Guys, listen, I don't, I don't know what six wells you've been drinking from. I don't know what six relationships and statuses and experience that you've been looking to for satisfaction, but I can tell you is that Jesus is your number seven. Completion, fulfillment, satisfaction is in him and in him alone. Because that's something that you're looking for is actually a someone who is looking for you. This is for you, Christian. 
Yes, you've received Christ maybe several years ago. You've trusted that he died for your sins and that they're cleansed. But you just look to him to be your savior, not your satisfaction. You're like, God, thanks for paying for my sin. Thanks that I can go to heaven. But on this earth, I'm gonna look over here. I'm gonna look to this person, this place, this possession, this experience. And that something you're looking for, deep down in the core of it, is actually a someone who is looking for you. Or as C.S. Lewis said it this way, he says, if I find in myself a yearning which nothing in this world can satisfy, the best explanation for it is that I was created for another world. Isn't that a great quote? I imagine Jesus would affirm that quote. For we were made for a world in which you and I turn and trust Jesus in every area of our life for satisfaction, not just for our salvation. And we drink from the well of his love, his forgiveness and his belonging through a daily and vibrant relationship with him where we're looking to his word with his people and in prayer. And we walk with him daily to experience this real satisfaction in him. So maybe it's right now, church, maybe right now for the very first time in your life, or maybe you're reminded afresh again that you really don't feel complete. You don't feel fulfilled. You're tired of searching for the one, the place, the thing that will satisfy. And yes, maybe you've accomplished a lot and you've got far in life, but you're tired and you still don't feel internally quite right. The quiet of the night when you're by yourself, maybe you're even lying next to your spouse and internally you feel like, I don't know if I can make it another day. I hate my life. I hate myself. I hate what's going on. It's in that very place that Jesus travels to the Samaria of your life to meet you right where you're at. His love is the reason it's the gap. It's what your heart really needs. You were created for the love of God and to abide in it deeply. It's like St. Augustine said 1,600 years ago. Kyle, this is for you, buddy. It's one of your favorites. And Nick sings this often through one of our worship songs. It says this, our hearts are indeed restless until they find their rest in you, Christ. Guys, it's in this passage that Jesus the Messiah has come to restore that love to you. And he invites you to come and to trust and accept and to follow him as your personal Messiah this day and every day. Accepting this invitation is not some blind leap into the dark as lots of Christian or lots of critics of Christianity would say. It's not a blind leap into the dark. Accepting this invitation is actually a step into the light because it's a step towards a love that you've always longed for, a step towards a God who knows everything there is to know about you. And he loves you anyway in every dark nook and cranny of your life. A step toward a God who never stops thinking about you, that's seen every head, every hair on that head, captured every tear that's dropped from your eye. It's a step toward a love that you've always craved and a desire to be fully known, to be fully loved by an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-forgiving, almighty God. So hear the invitation that John gives us in chapter three of his book. It's an invitation you've heard often. 
It's an invitation that we receive once and we just keep living in the grace of that invitation. It's this, for God so loved this world that he gave his only son so that whoever, wherever, and whatever place of sin, whoever would believe in his life, death, and resurrection, they should not perish, but they would have eternal life. And Jesus, through this passage, is inviting you to step into the invitation that God is extending to you here, right here and right now today. So church, listen, to help us take a moment here and better reflect on this passage, I want to to share with you sort of this dramatized retelling of this very passage. I want to share a clip with you because I want you to better see and sense and maybe imagine what this invitation and this encounter with Jesus would have been like. And so let's take a moment and let's watch this clip together. Would you give me a drink? drink? Did you hear me? me? That's That's bad, bad, huh? huh? What? What? You, you, you. you. That's what you think think me me is a medicine? The woman. woman. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. you. I have have come come with others. Why so late late in the day? day? Don't don't we come to the wells wells in the the pool of the morning? Yeah, yeah. None of them will be seen with me, so I took to come to you. Why won't they be seen with you? Long, Long story. I'd still like a drink of water, water if you can spare it. Easy, what a hard throat will do. Aren't I unclean, unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by, by this vessel? vessel? Maybe, Maybe some, some of my people, people say, say that about, about your women, women, but I don't. I don't. Yeah? And what do, what you, do you say? I say, I say if, if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. Uh, oh, I see. 
You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank Him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know. But not by the Messiah. <sighs> and you know these things. Because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. You promise? I promise. 
told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> You forgot your um. Papsy, a man who told me everything I ever did. <laughs> Guys, I love that clip. Gets me every time. I watched it and helped put some subtitles on it and all of that, and it gets me every time. Guys, seeing that scripture played out in that way is sometimes just helpful. Of course, guys, not everything connected with the chosen TV series is perfect, which I showed a clip from that, but this clip is certainly helpful as we feel and experience the emotion behind this very passage. What I love about the ending of that, and we see it in the scripture, is that she came with those water jugs and was so caught up in this new living water that she left those water vessels behind. Almost symbolic telling us that, again, what she really needed all along was something and someone not just physical, but someone divine someone to reach into the very places of her life and her heart and her past to love her where she was. When she left those water vessels there and runs back into the city, she exclaims, come and see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. And why does she declare that with such confidence? Why would you say, look, here's a person who's told me all of my sin? Because she feels safe and secure knowing that one day this Messiah, as she was told, that one day this Messiah would be the one who takes her transgressions and it's by his stripes she would be healed. And so she metaphorically, when she leaves the vessel, she leaves her old life behind and she takes the living water and she takes that back into the world that has hurt her the most, which leaves us to number five, our final Fivefold thing that we see Jesus do in every single interaction. We see Jesus do this. Church, Jesus saves you and then he sends you. Maybe back into the very same places that you have been hurt and wounded and he sends you back to share the gospel with others. Again, let me read to you. So then the woman left water jar and she went away into the town and she said to the people, come, please, everyone. And can you imagine how weird this was. Didn't she just go during the heat of the day to avoid interactions with people? And then now she's publicly like in the streets, like old school declaring, everybody come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so everyone, they knew her, they knew her past, they know her life. And they went out of the town to see who this man was. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. Just 10 minutes ago, she was in shambles and broken and rejected. And now she is turned in to a beautiful vessel of ministry to others. She is proclaiming the gospel. A woman in a mess 
is now turned into a missionary. And her ministry is to go into the same place, the same village, the same town that hurt her. And she brings hope and healing through the cross and the message of the Messiah. Church, do you realize that that is still your ministry as well? Maybe it's for you to take that message back to your family where you've been hurt, back to those relationships, those friendships, those workplaces. Yes, let's use some discretion if there had to be some healthy boundaries, of course. But how do we take this message that wasn't just designed to be for us, it was designed to be for us and through us to others? God saved you in order to send you so that they may experience the same grace truth and forgiveness that you did through Jesus as well. So church, as we close, let me ask you, who will you go to this week? To whom will you go back to and leave where you've been searching for behind because you found the one that's been searching for you? Who will you go to this week? How will you contact them? How will you share and show the gospel to someone? Is it a family member? Is it a coworker? Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a conversation with someone that you've been circling around the faith with, but you maybe you want to take some time to have a gospel conversation. Ask them what they believe about Christianity. Do they believe in Jesus? What's their experience with some sort of religious background? Enter into some sort of conversation because friends, this is our mission. At the very end of all of these interactions, Jesus always seeks to save the person and send them back out into ministry. And that's what we see. So church, who will you plan to show and share the gospel to? Who will you share it with? Guys, for just as the gospel meets us where we are, we're to bring the gospel to meet others where they are. And we end with this. May what God has done for you in the gospel be done through you to others. The gospel meets you where you